I mean, I've always believed this, but I believe it even more now that like, it's really hard to say when it's like officially over at a 200. Mm -hmm. When I hit that mile 80 or so aid station and I decided to like push myself and keep going again, like when I came into that aid station, they told me I gained about three miles on first. So they were about 32 miles ahead of me. But like just in that moment, I was just like so confident and knew that I'd be able to catch him. Welcome to the Zero Quit Podcast, where I bring you candid conversations with elite athletes, entrepreneurs, specialists, and other creatives. I'm your host, Brock Covington, and through these dialogues, you'll hear powerful stories and practical advice that will help you live a more active and intentional life. If you enjoy the show, be sure to subscribe and share it with a friend. What's going on, guys? Welcome back to another episode of the Zero Quit Podcast. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Mike McKnight. He's a professional ultramarathon runner and running coach based out of northern Utah. He's won various 200-mile races, including the 2023 Coconut 250. He holds the FKT for the 500-mile Colorado Trail and is a Triple Crown of 200s finisher, which is a triad of 200-mile ultra races. How are you doing, Mike? And have you had your raw milk this morning yet? <laughs> yeah, I'm doing great. And that's because I have had my raw milk this morning. <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm very slow to get on the kick. I think I uh, I told Jeremy I'm I'm at the point where I've seen him, you and Pierce drinking it so much that not only am I convinced, but I think this Saturday I'm I'm going to the farmer's market with my wife. I'm gonna try and look, scout out some raw milk and uh yeah, join the gang. Yeah, you won't regret it. Are you in Denver? I'm in uh, Colorado Springs, which I oh, okay. I don't know if you have you been there. Yeah, I have. Yeah, yeah. I prefer it way more. I feel like it doesn't need to be a day, a dichotomy or like a rivalry between Denver and Colorado Springs. But <laughs> at first, you know, the inconvenience of being a little bit out of the way, not super close to the city. Um, Denver obviously has better restaurants and entertainment, but one. I think the trails are way better around here. I like being out of the way. It's a little more rural where I live too in like Southeast Colorado Springs. And um, yeah, that's my ramble, I guess. Yeah. I mean, me and my wife had to move to Denver for a time for work. And yeah, I remember there was a day we took a trip down to Colorado Springs to see, um, what was it called? Is it like Gar Garden of the Gods? Garden of the Gods. Yeah. 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 And I, I love the vibe of Colorado Springs. So I, I, um, I'd much rather would have lived there as well. Um, yeah. Instead of Denver. <laughs> it's a little more laid back. And I will say like we're, so this is, we're, we've moved last year. So we've been here a full year and we kind of parked it for, for now. And I think another two, three years. Uh, but then I think we're kind of scouting and balancing whether we want to live more rurally, more in like a mountain town, small mountain town vibe, like a, a buddy of mine. I think you might know him as well. Uh, do you know Don Reichelt? Yeah. Yeah, so him, of course, he's in fair play, and then uh, Robbie Ballinger's like in Salida, so something like that, you know, or whether we want to still be closer to convenience and, and grocery stores and so forth, so it's like, it's like a balance of finding that, but um, <laughs> all that to say, uh, I will be hopping into the, the raw milk train very soon, but let's dig into you a little bit. I, I don't want to, I think you've been on a million and a half podcast and probably already given your running story <laughs> a million times, so what I'll ask you better for those who don't know you Give us the cliff notes. How did Mike McKnight become this this ultra runner and fall into this crazy sport? Yeah, the cliff notes is I got into running when I was 21 and I broke my back shortly after. Uh -huh. And the doctor told me that the extensity of like the, the break in my back, basically I'd be in bed for months up to a year. <clears throat> mm -hmm. And so I dropped out of college for a full year. I lost my job. Long story short, I recovered significantly faster. Um, I actually started running again three weeks after my surgery. And then since I wasn't in college and I didn't have a job, my friends were all in college. Like I literally had nothing else to do. So every mm -hmm. day I'd run for a couple hours. I'd go to the gym and lift some weights. And then I would um, just keep on that train. And then I eventually met an ultra marathon runner who invited me to, to train with him and then the mm -hmm. rest is history <laughs> yeah yeah and then you just wind up running 200 miles and uh sleeping on rocks and so forth yeah now, <laughs> in, in reference to the the fast recovery one thing that I, that i like i think you have it pinned on your profile still is the uh recovery from your it band syndrome and mm -hmm. i i never realized that you had that at first when I, I had heard of you and followed you and uh it's funny because i had been dealing with that for about like a year year and a half basically most of 2022 and uh, that was a journey for me trying to figure out and recover from that and figure it out. Coming from a personal trainer and like eight years of lifting, I felt like I 
could kind of put the pieces of the puzzle together and try and figure it out myself because most therapists, most doctors, as I'm sure this is what you experience, they're going to kind of give you the whole, hey, you're just going to rest, you got to wait it out. And they don't always give you the most proactive solution like, hey, let's do what we can for now and then slowly build it up. They just want to give you the safe, the kind of general response to all patients, which is rest, ice, all that stuff. Yeah. Um, all that to say, how was your experience with IT band syndrome? Because it was something that was very frustrating to slowly come back from for me. And what is the status of it now? Is it something you still deal with? Yeah, I mean, it's extremely frustrating because when your IT band flares up, it's like crippling in a lot of cases. Yeah. Like you can barely even walk. And mm -hmm. so <clears throat> I remember my first experience at the Triple Crown of 200s was in 2017. And the, the peak of my IT band syndrome was at the Tahoe 200, where our mutual mm -hmm. friend Pierce just finished. <laughs> I remember it was roughly mile 60 to 65, where it like really flared up. And I basically walked from mile 60 to 160. Like I basically walked a full 100 miles. What was the uh, the pain like? Because when I experienced it, it was more like a pinching kind of nerve pain by the outer, outside of my knee. How were you experiencing it? Yeah, it was the same. About and like that, it, yeah. it, uh, it limited my flexibility. Like I couldn't mm -hmm. bend my, my leg to a certain extent. So like I, I basically had to like hobble with a stiff leg because it hurt yeah. the most when I would bend it. Bend it, yeah. And so yeah. like I almost dropped out of that race. But then um, uh, my good buddy Ben Light, his wife is a massage therapist, like a deep tissue massage therapist. And mm -hmm. he was doing the race at the time. And I happened to like come into an aid station and his wife was there and she, she put me on a bed and she like, she scraped my IT band. I don't, have you ever had that done to you before? No, <laughs> no. It, do you know what scraping Painful. is? I know what scraping is. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's, yeah. I mean, I've had it done since and it's always painful, but like it's painful times 20 in the middle of a 200 mile race. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, but like she did that and then I was able to start running again. And so when that happened, I was just like, okay, like up to that point when she scraped me in my head, I was just like, I'm going to have to deal with this for the rest of my life. Like this is just mm -hmm. some weird injury that I have. Um, but when she did that and I got out, I was like, oh, wow, like it's just, I'm just tight somewhere. And so after doing some research and learning that the majority of like people's IT band issues stems from either weak glutes or your glutes mm -hmm. not firing, um, you know, one of the recommendations I was given was to just start doing five minutes of wall sits a day. Mm -hmm. uh, not, not necessarily all at once, but just spread out throughout the day as I choose. And so within like a week or two, like I noticed major differences in terms of like the amount of times that it would flare up. Mm -hmm. And so since then, I've done like a, an ex like a ton of like exercises throughout the week where I'm activating my glutes. Yeah. And I mean safe to say since 2017 i haven't really had any kind of it band pain so it's it's been awesome <laughs> yeah I, I ran into the same thing and uh like i said for the first few months it was like uh, you know i wasn't sure whether this was just something or i take a week a little bit lighter or you know whether it was going to be a more long-term thing it's it sure enough kept kind of reoccurring if you don't address the issue of course and uh I was throwing everything at the kitchen sink about it or at it. And coming from a strength background, I was like, man, I couldn't have weak glutes. I can deadlift in the 400s. I have strong squats, but it's not, it's, it's not barbell strength, right, for running. <laughs> and, <laughs> and also, the, the glute is more than just uh, working in a, in a you know, singular plane of motion. There's also that, specifically that glute meat on that outside that is very involved with hip stability and running and so forth. So yeah, for me, just like, just like you, I almost got into like the wall sets, but what I was mainly doing was, you know, clamshell sidewalks, mm -hmm. anything, mini band. Um, one, one exercise I really lean towards and still do today as like a preventative measure is like a Bulgarian split squat. And then just really kind of drive my uh, opposite leg almost up in a stride and squeeze that kind of glute and just focus on uh, driving that knee, make sure it's kind of following in the pattern over the toes and so forth. But, um, yeah, I was just curious because I know it was hell for me, and I'm sure uh, you dealt with uh, a lot of frustration with it as well. Yeah, and it's kind of interesting too, and I'm not claiming that there's any science behind this. This is just my um, personal mm -hmm. experience. But I can't, like last year, um, I, I went out to try to get the Arizona Trail FKT. It's, mm -hmm. a, it's an 800-mile trail that goes from the top of Arizona to the bottom of Arizona. 
And I mean, obviously with that kind of volume, like I didn't end up finishing it, but I did get just over 600 miles uh, into the trail. And mm-hmm. so obviously with that kind of volume, no matter how much you're strength training, you're probably going to run into some kind of issues. And so there were times when like my IT band started to get tight. Like mm-hmm. it wasn't the pain that I would experience back in 2017. Like I just feel it getting tight and like in my head, it was just like, well, if I don't deal with this, it might lead to, yeah. yeah. (laughs) And so what (laughs) I actually started doing, um, and it's the weirdest thing to describe, but if you're running and try it, I'm sure you can understand what I'm saying. But like, Mm -hmm. basically I would flex my glute while I was running. So I basically like clench my butt cheeks together. Um, (laughs) and just like flexing my glutes like that, it re-engaged them. And then Mm -hmm. just like within a matter of like, and I'm not joking, like five seconds, like that IT band pressure started to to disappear. And so I spent the next like five minutes running while I was like flexing my glutes, trying to engage my glutes mentally, like communicating with my glutes and being like, hey, I need you guys to fire. Something's happening because you're not working properly. Like Mm -hmm. just doing that, like for five minutes made it so I was good to go for another three or four hours before it would start to tighten up again. And then I just have to like mentally try to like re-engage my glutes. Yeah. It's very much. And again, I could, for me, I'm using this tool from my experience of bodybuilding is using that mind muscle connection and just trying to mentally activate that glute. Cause especially when you're running, it's like, you're not thinking about flexing a singular muscle. You Mm -hmm. obviously want to stay somewhat loose and so forth, but yeah, when it comes to like firing that glute, yeah, sometimes you do get to lean on the the oddities or, or odd <laughs> strategies, basically squeezing your glutes, you know, just to keep everything in line and, and operating properly. So I think, what are we, two, maybe at most three, I guess it was in May, right, from Cocodona. So yeah, almost about like three months, I think. Mm-hmm. So I want to talk all about Cocodona because you ran it three years in a row, which I think is an interesting perspective that, that I love to dig into and so forth. But Let's start with 2021. So walk me through that story. What happened? Um, Because it it didn't go as planned, right? Yeah, not even close. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Yeah, so I like like you said earlier, I live in northern Utah, Mm -hmm. and we're. um, Have you ever been to Salt Lake before? No, no. Okay, so just for reference, where I live, we're usually a good 10 to 20 degrees cooler temperature wise than Salt Lake City. Mm-hmm. And so most of the winter were below freezing. Um, it's very common to get in the negatives and it, it usually lasts as far as like April. Like we had a snowstorm in April this year, one of our biggest mm-hmm. snowstorms of the winter. Um, and so, and then Cocodona is like May, it's usually the first weekend of May, first, second or third is when it starts usually. And so the first year that I went down there, um, I left, the race starts on a Monday um, we left, I want to say Saturday morning, drove all the way there and then, you know, spent Sunday there. Then the race started on Monday. And so, you know, when, when I left, it was snowing, <clears throat> meaning it was below 32 degrees. Yeah. <laughs> and then we got, we got to Arizona and it was in the mid nineties. And so, you know, that was a 60 plus degree yeah, temperature swing. Yeah. <laughs> very, very sharp change. And so just like the heat just felt like that much more extreme to my body just because mm-hmm. I wasn't used to anything close to that for the past several months. And so, you know, between not being familiar with the heat or used to the heat and then just not being smart with my hydration, uh, falling behind that for the first day at Cocodona is the hardest part of the course. Um, you gain 10,000 feet of climbing in the first 35 miles, which is I mean, that's, there's not a lot of 50 K's out there yeah, that has that much elevation in it. Um, and it's hot and exposed. And then that first year, it was like a 25 mile section that we had to go without water. Um, Mm -hmm. since then they've like, they've added some water drops to make it a little bit more manageable. But that first year we had to carry all our water. We all ran out. I ran out of water probably two and a half to three hours before the aid station and again, it was like the hottest part of the day. There was no shade, nothing. <clears throat> so mm-hmm. I just felt super far behind on my hydration. That factored in with not being used to the heat. And I ended up getting rhabdomyolysis, which mm-hmm. is just a breakdown of muscle into the bloodstream. And then your kidneys have a hard time filtering it. And mm-hmm. so it's essentially premature kidney failure. Um, one of the signs that shows that you have it is your your pee turns brown, basically mm-hmm. brown to blood. 
Um, so yeah, it was about mile 150. Like I tried catching back up. My pee wasn't getting any better. I started showing signs of heat, um, exhaustion, just like started to shiver, um, started to get kind of delusional and flushed mm-hmm. in the face. So I ended up dropping a mile 50, 150, went to the hospital, got an IV for just a little bit over 24 hours. And, um, so yeah, the first year was extremely terrible <laughs> with, with ultra running. Where do you draw the line? Because I think it's, it's different from person to person and circumstance as well, but where do you draw the line between pushing through something and, and, and fighting through it? Obviously in a circumstance like this, when you're talking about liver failure, there really is no, <laughs> no sensical or, or logical approach to pushing through that. But you know, with other things in the past, like, like we mentioned the IT band, I guess what, what, kind of checklist is going through your mind as far as okay like where is my line that i would draw in the sand of okay i do need a drop i mean when i my first dnf was because of it band issues excuse me um Mm -hmm. but like since then like like i said earlier like i used to think that it band syndrome was like something i just had to deal with permanent yeah yeah but like i learned that no it's just a tight muscle that's pulling on my it band and so for me, I feel like physically, like obviously if you roll your ankle and like sprain it or something and it swells up like a balloon, like you don't mm-hmm. want to push through on that. That could lead to some permanent damage. But like I feel like most of the like physical pain that runners feel in a race, mm-hmm. like nine times out of 10, it's just due to something being overly tight and it's pulling on that part of your muscle. And so I believe that physical pain if you have a decent understanding of the body, like you can address that and take care of that in the race as you're going and it's not going to lead to injury. Mm-hmm. Um, again, there is that one out of 10 times in my opinion, like a rolled ankle or um, like I had a stress fracture in my shin in one of mm-hmm. my races, like stuff like that. Like, yeah, like it's probably best not to push through. Um, but when it comes to like, yeah, if you're peeing brown, like once you get behind <laughs> on your hydration, it's really yeah. hard to come back from that. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, red P is a red flag, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. So I guess the best way to say it is like muscularly, I believe most of it's fixable and you're not going to actually injure yourself. Like a lot of, like when you're in a race, like especially a 200 and your mind's compromised, it's mm-hmm. easy to just like over exaggerate the pain yeah. that you're in. Uh, yeah. But in rea- the reality is it's just from being tight. So yeah, I mean, in my opinion, like 90% of the times it's fixable. It's not going to lead to permanent injury. You just got to figure out how to deal with it and then keep moving forward. Yeah. Now with Coca Dona, it's, it's still a pretty, a pretty fresh race. Was this the last one, the fourth time they've done it or fifth? Third. Third. Okay. Only third. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I've done it every year. Awesome. Okay. Yeah. So it, it's changed almost every year because of different circumstances. Like I said, they've, they've kind of addressed the water issue, but I think last year, right, they had to alter the course because of, uh, I think, forest fires that were in the area. So like a few months out, they had to alter the course and figure that out. No, so it was how, like a week out. Oh, it was a week out. Okay. Exactly. Yeah. So even worse. So one, what are your thoughts on, on some of those changes? How has that impacted how you approach the race? Uh, when it comes to each each year being different from the last, I mean, I mean that's really why I've came back each year. Like, I yeah. mean, I came back the second time because I wanted to beat the course. Like, you know, I DNF the previous year, mm-hmm. but yeah, a week before the race started, they altered the course, and the main like way they altered it was they had to cut out the first fifty-ish miles. Like they had to change mm-hmm. the first fifty miles and that's like the hard section. <clears throat> mm-hmm. So like even before the race started last year, like I knew I was gonna come back this year because like I just had to beat that section. That, like, yeah. yeah. Like that first forty mile section is the section that killed me and that's the section I wanted to beat. So yeah, with them cutting that out the second year, I knew I'd be coming back this third year. Um and I mean honestly this year isn't much different from the first year. Like it was only just safer just by adding in the water drop in that first section. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I mean, I don't Nothing know how to answer that. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so, so you come in second place in 2022 and then, you know, as we've kind of rambled a few times about, you've done it three straight years. I wonder, is there another race that maybe you can compare this to where you've done it three years in a row and, at, when you do a race that many times, 
are you still excited? Are you are you almost just ready to just conquer it, get check the box, be over, done with it? Or you know, how is your perspective towards a race that you are currently <laughs> doing over and over again? I mean, yes to both. You're excited about it, but you're also ready to just chalk check the box off. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this is, I've I've never done I've done multiple races at least two to three times, but never three years in a row like this. Oh, okay. Um but I mean, yeah, when I started Cocodona this year, like I was extremely confident, like I addressed, I felt all my issues, like mm-hmm. the heat issues. I went out two to two and a half weeks early to acclimate to, or to get used to the heat of Arizona. Mm-hmm. Um, I carried more water this year as compared, like even with that water drop, um, mm-hmm. that they added, I still carried more water than I did the first year. And okay. so you know, I was a lot more prepared. Like I was just, yeah, I was just super confident, but I was ready to crush the race, but I was also just ready to finally check it off and say, like, I finally, finally conquered this race that I've been trying to conquer for the past three years. Yeah. So, so walk me through that race as best as you can. So the first day I know there were some, some brutal, once again, some brutal struggles and circumstances. So, uh, yeah, yeah. Carry me through those, those first, you know, day or two. Yeah. So, I mean, this is a hard one to give cliff notes for, so (laughs) cut me (laughs) off. Whatever stands out. Yeah. (laughs) So, I mean, um, the race starts at 5 a.m. So it's an, it's a pretty early start. Mm -hmm. Um, so the first, the first, that first day they have a requirement that you carry, that you have the capacity to carry four liters of water. Mm-hmm. And so, um, the night before, and I never, um, when I race, I just use the handhelds. Like I, I was going to ask, vest. what is that? Yeah. I was going to say, what does that look like? Do you basically have to have the two, the two, uh, flasks in the front and a bladder in the back? So, I mean, in the past, I just used to have a ton of those handhelds. Yeah. Like, cause I, oh yeah. Handhelds. Yeah. Okay. But for this one, I had this idea. So I had four handhelds because each handheld is 500 milliliters. So uh-huh. four of them would be two liters. And then I had a two liter bladder. So this is yeah. really the first race that I decided to try to utilize a bladder. Mm-hmm. And um, so I had this genius idea the night before I filled the bladder full of ice and mm-hmm. I put it in the freezer. And my idea was because like the first 10 <laughs> miles of Coca Donuts. All right. Pretty, I feel like I already know where this is going. <laughs> I don't think Let's you do, ahead. actually. OK, OK, go ahead. <laughs> but uh, the first 10 miles of the race is pretty tame. And then you yeah. hit a, an aid station at mile 10, and then you just climb for the next 25 miles. And so uh-huh. in my head, I was just like, I'm going to put the bladder in my pack. I'm going to let the ice melt on my back for those first 10 miles. And then when I get to that aid station, I'll top off my bladder with water. Hopefully, there will still be some ice in it. And then in my head, I was like, I'm going to have a nice cold bladder for the next um, yeah. 25 miles because, you know drinking hot water when you're just scorched by the heat is oh, never yeah. as satisfying. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so it was, and I mean, it ended up being a good idea. It worked out like it, it was great, but oh, okay. the mistake that I made was, um, I left to go to the race and I forgot my bladder in the freezer. <laughs> mm. And so, and they wouldn't let me do the race if I didn't have four liters carrying capacity. And uh-huh. so me and my crew, we turned around, we rushed back to the house. We got the bladder put it in my vest, started driving. I typed in the GPS coordinates and it was giving us an ETA of getting there like three minutes before the race started, Mm -hmm. which like, I mean, three minutes is three minutes, but yeah, it's not ideal. And so we fly into the parking lot. Uh, My crew goes to park while I run up to get my spot tracker. Mm -hmm. I get into the starting corral with like a minute to two minutes left. Um, Another requirement is that you have to have the course GPX on either your phone or your watch. And yeah. the day before, I had it downloaded to my watch, like I made sure of it. I pulled up my watch to start it, and then like, um, I don't know if like I somehow synced with somebody else's watch, but mm-hmm. like it kind of like flashed, and when the screen came back, everything was in like Chinese or Japanese or something. Oh, great! Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And so like I start panicking. I try finding the route, but I'm having a hard time because I can't read Japanese or whatever it was. <laughs> And so I finally find like the route section in my watch and I click on it. And the only course that was in my watch was some weird like 2300 kilometer race Mm -hmm. like map. It wasn't the Cocodona map. And so we're below a minute to go. I'm panicking because I can't find the actual GPX route. (laughs) 
I pull up my phone, I pull up the app, I see the route, I try resyncing it with my watch, and it just keeps saying like, hey, this this route's already downloaded to your watch, so it wouldn't resync. Yeah. And so they say go, I end up just clicking that route and hitting start and going with the flow. It wasn't ideal, but in my head I was like, well, at least I know the course. I've done it for three years now. Mm-hmm. And then, I mean, and <laughs> I get to mile three, and I go in to like take a salt tab, and I realize that I forgot all my electrolytes with my crew. I didn't grab any electrolytes. <laughs> See, the funny thing is, these don't sound like winning conditions, but they do happen to be winning conditions. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it yeah. wasn't ideal, dude. <laughs> and so, yeah, I had to go the first 10 hours or whatever it ended up being, the hottest section of the course without any electrolytes. I mean, wow. the first aid station, they gave me two or three salt pills, um, but the amount that they gave me like equated to the amount that I would take in an hour, basically. Mm-hmm. And so I had some salt for like the first, or I guess that would have been like, you know, the second hour or whatever. Um, Mm -hmm. But yeah, after that I had no salt. So, I mean, that first day, like my stomach kind of got jacked up because I was off on my electrolytes. I started having cramping issues because I didn't have any sodium in me. Mm -hmm. Um, I got to my crew at mile 35 and I was pretty like spent, like, you know, it's a hard 50K, but throw on top of that, no electrolytes, and it makes it quite a bit harder. And so I spend time at that aid station. Um, I end up leaving and just like, I'm just like so exhausted. Like, you know, yeah. that next section, the past previous two years, like I had ran it, like I could barely walk it. I was just like so low on energy and my muscles were just so zapped. Mm-hmm. Um The next like five hours, I'm just like in a real mentally low spot. Um, I'm heading to an aid station. The previous aid station told me my crew would be there and that they could help me. And so I ended up calling my wife and I was talking to her and I was like, Hey, well, I'll see you in like a mile or two and we can talk there. And mm-hmm. my wife goes, what are you talking about? And I was like, I'll see you at this next aid station. Right. And she said, no, it's not crewable. We're at the aid station after that. Oh. And so like, <laughs> that was just like a mental, just like I was another, yeah, yeah another punch I mean, in the gut. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> and then to make matters worse, I end up blowing past the next aid station. It's like a short quarter mile out and back off the trail and I didn't mm-hmm. see it. And so I ended up running about two and a half or three miles past that aid station. Yeah. And I eventually got to the point where I was just like, I feel like I should see the aid station by now. So I called my wife again. <laughs> I asked her to check the tracker to tell me where I'm at. And I hear her groan, which is something you never want to hear your crew yeah. do. And she's like, yeah, it looks like you're three miles or so past the aid station. So I had to turn around and go back to that aid station. So that was an mm-hmm. extra six or so miles. Took probably an hour Large and a half. Run. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, I get there in the middle of the night. Like at this point, I've decided like I'm ready to quit. Like it just felt like everything that could go wrong was going wrong. Mm-hmm. And so I get there. My back's hurting a little bit more than usual. Like I try convincing the medics that my back's bad so that they would like medically pull me do it for you yeah (laughs) yeah do it for me because i don't want to quit i want them to pull me (laughs) and so i mean they ended up telling me to sit at that aid station for an hour and a half and wait for the lead medic to come and evaluate me um so again like a lot of time is being wasted right now like i missed the Mm -hmm. aid station i sit at this aid station for over two hours the lead medic gets there, tells me my back is fine, and that if I want to keep going, <laughs> I can keep going. <laughs> yeah. And so that kind of sucked. But just when I was getting ready to quit, there were two other guys. Do you know Jeff Garmeyer or Pete Koselnick? I don't think so, no. Okay. I mean, they're great long-distance runners. Like Jeff has mm-hmm. a ton of long-trail FKTs. Pete Koselnick, he's done transcon, so he's ran from like Alaska to Florida. Like He's a pretty big distance runner. Yeah. Um, they were both having a terrible first day and saw I was getting ready to quit. And they were just like, Hey, it's sucking for us too. We're just going to leave right now and walk together and just tell funny stories. So just come with us and walk to your crew and let them help you make the decision. Mm-hmm. So I'm very grateful for them because they talked me out of quitting at that aid station. And I walked with them to the next aid. We got there probably at 4 a.m. or so. And I told my crew, so to keep in mind, when I do a 200, I usually don't sleep the first night. The mm. second night, I do like a very quick power nap and then just finish. Uh, but this first night, I just came in and I was just like, I just told my crew, I was like, hey guys, like I'm mentally done. I'm probably going to quit. So I'm just going to climb up into my pop- pop-up tent. 
I'm going to sleep until I wake up. Do not wake me up. I'm going to wake up when I'm ready and then Mm -hmm. we'll talk. So I climb into this tent. I sleep for probably two and a half or three hours. I wake up, the sun's come up. It's around 7 a.m. I'm feeling significantly better, which kind of in the moment pissed me off because yeah, <laughs> because Every time I was, you want an out, it just gets ripped out from you. Yeah, exactly. Uh-huh. <laughs> and so I'm just laying in the tent. My wife's in there too. She wakes up and asks me what I'm thinking, and I ask her how far behind I am, and she tells me that I'm about 35 miles behind first place, and that they um, were 10 hours ahead of me. And so that like really demoralized me. Um, I don't want it to sound like I only raced to win, but when you're, when you find, like when you typically are racing to win and you find yourself that far back, it's kind of, mm-hmm. it's unknown territory and it's hard to stay motivated. Yeah. Um, and so basically my wife was just like, well, this next section's like seven miles, mostly downhill. Just go do it, see how you move. And then we'll decide at the next aid station which is what I ended up doing. That next section felt amazing. Um, I was able to pass probably 13 people. I was able to run the majority of it with no issues. And so I got to that next aid station and just like, you know, when I came into the aid station, my crew could see that I was ready to rock and roll. I felt a lot more motivated and um, I felt extremely um, confident that I was still able to like race back into the podium and, yeah. um, you know, to kind of throw it down for the next 180 miles. Let me pause you there. So one, I think I'm sure the sunset comment coming up as you're waking up definitely gave you a little bit of a mental boost, a little bit of a reset. <laughs> but I wonder, so you're, you're feeling better and so forth from probably a number of factors, but what was your strategy for reintroducing sodium electrolytes, getting food in you, getting hydrated again? What was your strategy? Because, you know, you can't just, at least when I've experienced, you know, bad hydration out of idiocy uh you know you try and rush stuff in and you just want to puke it up so what was your strategy to kind of get your body back in a uh, a good state yeah that's tough because like you said if you overload like your stomach's going to reject it you're either going to puke it up or you're going to get diarrhea basically yeah. and so i mean for me like the salt pills that i have i generally try to take them once every 30 to 45 minutes And so for me, it was just a matter of just like trying to take them once every 20 minutes or so. Mm -hmm. So just like a little bit faster. Yeah, a little bit faster, but not like a ton at once or whatever. And then when I'd come into aid station at aid stations, I'd try to do a little bit more of a load just Mm -hmm. because like, I mean, the reality is like if you increase your electrolytes, you also need to increase your water. Water. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so like at aid stations, it wasn't uncommon to come in and just drink a lot more water. And mm-hmm. so while I was doing that, it made more sense to maybe do like two pills when I got to an aid station or whatever. Gotcha. Okay. But my stomach so, never came back from it, which I'm sure you heard like what <laughs> I ended up fueling myself with for the rest of the race. Like, No, I didn't. So fill me in. Fill me in. What'd you do? I mean, like from that point, mile 70 to the finish, like I'm not exaggerating. 80 to 90% of my calories for that race came from raw milk. <laughs> Just oh, because. oh, that is that why Jeremy did that kind of? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you, you didn't you didn't follow the uh, the pure strategy of guacamole? <laughs> no, <laughs> well, no. So that was the problem. Like any real food, if uh-huh. it touched my tongue, I would start gagging, and I like oh. physically couldn't swallow anything that was like solid, non liquid. Yeah, okay. Yeah, but liquids, I was fine. So like between aid stations, I could sometimes throw down a gel, but for the most part, between aid stations, I didn't eat anything. And I'd come into an aid station and I'd chug like half a gallon of raw milk and then go to the next aid station. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's that's the new hack. Everybody's going to be picking up on that uh, for next year's <laughs> race, I feel like. Yeah. What What is your mindset like with such a long race? Because I think you, you could correct me at what point exactly you took the lead. But I know for I, I feel like the last 10 plus hours you were in the lead. What is the mindset in a race like that? when you are, let's say, a certain amount of hours ahead of somebody and you want to hold that position, but you're also trying to balance, do I take a quick nap? Uh, I got to keep up this pace. Someone could be gaining on me a lot faster than I realize. Yeah, so that's why, I mean, after this race, like I'm re-evaluating how I approach 200s because it Mm -hmm. used to be pushed through as much as I can without sleeping and then sleep. Kind of hard in the beginning and then 
ease up at the end a little bit or do as what you can at the end yeah and exactly then now it's the, okay and then now it's maybe slowly build into it yeah because i used to be so afraid like if i took a nap and got two to three hours behind in my head mm-hmm. i was like two to three hours that's extremely going to be very hard to make up mm-hmm. but i mean with cocodona like i said i got about 10 hours behind and i made that up and so now I'm just like, if I can make 10 hours up, like three to four hours, it's not going to be that hard to make up. Mm-hmm. And so, and then the other factor too is like chasing people is so much more motivating, at least to me than being chased. And yeah. so, and like whenever, like I start, uh, it just worked out so perfect. Whenever I started to like kind of get in that zombie mode where like my eyes started to shut and I started to like kind of run diagonally across the trail from falling asleep my pacer would be like, Oh, Hey, there's two more people up there. I can see their headlamps. And then that would give me a shot of adrenaline. It would wake me mm-hmm. up. I'd start running hard and I'd pass them. But interestingly enough, once I did catch first and pass first, which was roughly about a marathon to go when I caught him, mm-hmm. um, like almost instantly, like my drive and my motivation just like lowered tremendously. It was harder to stay awake. It was harder to pace myself. So like, once I got into that spot, it was significantly harder. So in my head, it just, I'm going to start strategically just like hanging back as much as I can just to like hang the other racers as a carrot in front of me to like kind of push myself um, for as much as the race as I can. <laughs> yeah, I, th- I think psychologically it's a lot easier to do it that way. I mean, even in just separate from a race and life in general, I think it's easier to always be chasing after a goal and you have that like you mentioned, that carrot dangling in front of you when after you reach it, you know, after you finish, let's say, Cocodona, you win first. Now coming back, you know, and trying to win it again, it doesn't have that same uh, grip on you as it did, you know, after your first year or your second year there. You know, you, you've kind of checked it off. So what other takeaways did you come out of that race other than the, the uh, change of strategy or was that mainly it? Yeah, that was mainly it. And then just... I mean, I've always believed this, but I believe it even more now that like, like I, it's really hard to say when it's like officially over at a 200. Because mm-hmm. um, like I said, like three to four hours, like if I had that much of a gap, it felt extremely difficult to close that kind of a gap. But I mean, when I hit that mile 80 or so aid station and I decided to like push myself and keep going... Like, again, like when I came into that aid station, they told me I gained about three miles on first. So they were about 32 miles ahead of me. Mm -hmm. But like just in that moment, I was just like so confident and knew that I'd be able to catch him. And so, I mean, the biggest thing for me now is just like I believe even more so that like there's really no real point where you can say that it's over in terms of being too far behind to catch, you know, the leaders who are ahead of you yeah it, it kind of reminds me of the uh you know the platitude of it isn't a uh, sprint it's a marathon right but almost times that by 10 <laughs> yeah. and then you gotta get the idea so your username a lot of what you're known for right, is this low carb diet so i want to dig into that and see you know first off what what drew you into this specific approach Yep. I mean, the the majority of my races early on, I either had stomach issues or energy issues. Um, mm-hmm. When I had stomach issues, it was from trying to eat as much as what everybody was recommending. My stomach couldn't digest it, so I'd puke or whatever. The other races where I had energy ra- issues, I didn't want to puke, so I started eating less to avoid mm-hmm. puking, but I wasn't getting enough calories, so then I'd just kind of bonk. You know, that's the term we use. I'd bonk and then um, just have a very, very slow finish. Um, it was in 2017. I met, uh, do you know Jeff Browning? Yeah. I feel like you and him both are like, in, in my mind, I know you guys for your, your glasses, your goggles. <laughs> yeah. Everybody thinks I'm trying to be like him. <laughs> Cause <laughs> Who he, did it first is the real question. <laughs> Jeff did it all first. I'm just okay, following. <laughs> no, I used to wear contacts, but I started getting like dry eyes and mm-hmm. like, start getting eye infections and so i have to wear glasses now and these are the best glasses for for physical activity but anyway i met jeff um and he was doing low carb for about four years at the time when i met him Mm -hmm. and like he explained it all to me just so well he's just basically like 
you know, every single human has a huge storage of fat in their body, but like biologically, it's easier to burn glucose, uh, burn carbs. Mm -hmm. And the standard American diet is a carb heavy diet. And we're just, most Americans are just constantly burning through that glucose and never tapping into their fat storage. And so it's Mm -hmm. just so foreign to them. And so the way he explained it was, you know, if you do a low carb approach, you teach your body one that, Hey, I have this fat storage. Let's start utilizing it some more. And then two, you teach your body how to efficiently use that fat storage. And then, um, you essentially you get the best of both worlds. You don't have to eat as much because your body's used to burning fat. Mm -hmm. And so with that, you're not going to have as many stomach issues because you don't have to eat as much. And then you're going to have like better energy because you're burning a more steady state of fuel. And then two, when you do take in carbohydrates strategically, um, like say there's a big climb coming up and you take a gel, um, it's Mm -hmm. kind of the same thing as like, a like, um, caffeine, somebody that does not take in a lot of caffeine in their day to day. If they all of a sudden take like a hundred to 200 milligrams of caffeine, that's going to like keep them wired because their body's Mm -hmm. not used to it. And so if you stay low carb in your day to day, but then you utilize strategic carbs in a race, it's like rocket fuel to your body. It's just like, oh, what's this stuff? And it burns right through it. It gives you a huge burst of energy. But because your body's so used to burning fat, once you burn through that glucose, you go right back to burning fat more consistently. So the way he explained it just made total sense to me. It seemed like it was going to fix like the two major issues that I was having. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, that was in 2017 when I started tinkering with it. And, you know, six years later, it's evolved it's a lot, but I'm still, yeah. you know, low carb. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like when you're when you're constantly shovel, shoveling in carbs and depending on carbs, it's almost like you're shoveling in coal into a furnace, right, to get energy, whereas the fat, you know, and relying on on that as a fuel source is almost like having that generator just constantly ready and, and ready to rock and roll. Uh, you mentioned that your diet has evolved over time. How has it done so specifically? And Obviously, it's low-carb runner. It's not zero-carb runner. So what carbs do you mix in uh, to your diet? Thank you for realizing that. It drives me crazy how many people don't (laughs) notice that. (laughs) Like, I'll get tagged in these posts on Facebook or Instagram, and it's this debate about carbs or whatever, and somebody tags me, and it's like, well, ask Mike McKnight. He doesn't eat any carbs. And I'm just like, I do. (laughs) Anyway, so... I mean, when it started out, I think anybody that follows a low carb approach, they fall into the same trap where you kind of get carb phobic. And mm. so, yeah, I mean, starting out, I'll admit it, like I was carb phobic. I was like more keto carnivore. I was afraid <laughs> to have any kind of carbs. The carbs that I did have, it was still like junk, like it was processed keto junk um, mm-hmm. in my head, which is still junk. Like today, oh, that's yeah. what I think. But at the time, I didn't think that. Um, and it's just evolved to just like, um, more whole foods. Like I still do a little bit of processed foods because I do believe if you're a hundred percent eliminating processed foods and then do a race and take in processed foods, your stomach's going to freak out. And it's impossible to be be, uh, perfect, you know? Right. (laughs) Yeah. So like once or twice a week, I still do have like my favorite, um, processed snack is like Siete chips. I don't know if you've heard of those. Uh-huh. Yeah, so potato chips, but they're cooked in avocado oil. So I'll have a bag of that once a week um, just to keep my body familiar with it. But for the most part, it's just meat, eggs, fruit, and occasional potatoes. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, the way it's evolved, basically, I do a lot of testing with my ketones, with my blood glucose. Basically, I'm just trying to find this threshold of like, what's the max amount of carbs I can have without compromising my body's ability to burn fat? Mm-hmm. So like six years ago, I was doing like 30 grams of carbs a day. It was like a strict keto diet. Um, fast forward to today, I'm probably having anywhere from 150 to 200 grams of carbs a day. Okay. Which, That's not too low at all. Well, when you compare it to... I Relatively, mean, but... Like there's a nutritionist. I, I follow a lot of nutritionists just to see what people are recommending these days. Mm-hmm. And um, believe it or not, most nutritionists recommend that endurance athletes especially on long run days are getting over 600 grams of carbs yeah and so so, uh, yeah i was gonna say what i'll say is it is low in regards to yes an athletic like what they're eating especially if it is a long run day or a race day or something like that i guess i just think on a a day-to-day basis that doesn't strike me as anything too low just because i probably eat 
I don't know, three to at most like 400 in a day. And that's with like 50% of my calories falling into uh, carbohydrates. Oh, cool. But so yeah, when you, you compare, mean, yeah. when you compare it to that, yeah, it's not much lower than what you're doing. Mm-hmm. But like when you compare it to most endurance athletes, it's significantly lower. Mm-hmm. And, um, and yeah, like I said, like my, my, um, stance has changed a lot. Um, I'm starting to believe it's not necessarily the carbs that inhibit our ability to burn fat for fuel, but it's the type of carbs. Mm-hmm. And so I believe that it is important. Like if you want to teach your body to burn fat for fuel, I do believe it's important to have like an initial keto phase just to like kind of cleanse your body from the processed junk that it's used to eating. Mm-hmm. But once you do that initial cleanse for, I believe anywhere from two to five months, like I did it for six months when I started. Mm-hmm. Um, once you do that cleanse, I believe that it's, again, it's not necessarily the carbs, but the type of carbs. So where I'm getting a hundred percent of my carbs from fruits and, um, potatoes, I believe that since those are cleaner carbs, it's not affecting my body's ability to burn fat. Mm-hmm. Now, like switch the role though, say like I'm doing 200 grams of carbs a day, but it's coming from Oreos, it's coming from potato chips, soda, like whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is just my theory. I do believe that that would affect my body's ability to burn fat. And it would yeah. also have a ton of other issues like inflammation, joint pain, joint aches, all that stuff. So yeah, basically it's evolved to more carbohydrates and then just like focusing on getting it from clean fruit foods instead of like the processed snacks that keto companies try to advertise to yeah so you touched on a little bit earlier that a lot of people have misconceptions about your diet so i want to give you the chance to kind of get on a little soapbox here and 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 tell me a little bit about some of the most common criticisms you get because there are a lot of myths out there about about meat eating about dairy products a lot of it's pushed by uh you know the food industry documentaries like game changers and so (laughs) forth so here's your chance to uh to rant about it <laughs> uh you sure you want to do that <laughs> <laughs> um i mean the big one is like people claiming that i don't do carbs like that's yeah. the biggest one but everything else is just from like a health standpoint like it blows my mind how much people honestly believe that like cereal and donuts and pop tarts mm-hmm. are better than eggs than ground yeah. beef than steak like the, I or get even told, even like the overly processed stuff like oat milk is going to be better than an, a singular source like let's say raw milk and yeah. <laughs> it's a lot of it is is healthy user bias that or in in this matter unhealthy user bias where meat gets demonized because all the studies are using people that are eating a typical American diet full of garbage processed meats sausages not actual lean. Uh, you know, well grass fed, you know, grass finished uh, beef and so forth, right? Yeah, exactly. Like you touched it, the processed meats is a big one, I feel. Like, you know, they did the study on somebody that eats like a ton of bacon and sausage, but not just like a nice sirloin steak or whatever. Mm-hmm. And then just like the misconceptions on cholesterol, it's like, yeah, well, like, yeah. don't get me started on that one. <laughs> I, <laughs> I mean, know. yeah, eggs, eggs are. I, I was literally thinking about it on like a walk the other day. I was like, eggs are just so insanely valuable for how much you can get out of them for how simple and cheap they are as far as, you know, vitamins, healthy fats, good cholesterol, protein. You get so much from, from an egg and yet yeah. it is still demonized. And my thing I think about too is, you know, we have grandparents that like lived off eggs every morning for their life that lived to be a hundred. I'm like, I don't think it's the cholesterol from the eggs that's killing <laughs> yeah. people. I just saw a picture of Buzz Aldrin the other day. He's 93 and he was eating a big old plate of steak and eggs. And like, he looks like he, like I asked my wife, she didn't know it was Buzz Aldrin. I was like, Mm -hmm. see this guy, how old do you think this guy is? And she said 80. And I'm like, no, he's 93. Like, Mm -hmm. so yeah, like the cholesterol theme drives me crazy. It's like our brain needs cholesterol. And there's also plenty of data to show that the cholesterol from foods actually don't affect the cholesterol in our blood. Mm -hmm. Like it's, it's simple as that. And then I hear all the people complaining about the cost of eating this way. Like mm-hmm. somebody is like, oh, pasture-raised eggs, that's $7 a dozen. That's too expensive. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, well, first of all, you probably get a $7 latte from Starbucks every day. I'm sure you can yeah. afford it. <laughs> and two, <laughs> just first, like, yeah. like, 
you only need three or four a day and you're getting like, there's usually six grams of protein in an egg times that by four, mm-hmm. you know, you're getting 24 grams of protein from four eggs that can last you for three days. Like that's $3 a day or it's less, it's like two fifty anyway. So the cost of it, the cholesterol issues, thinking that just because it's plant-based, it's healthier. So like donuts mm-hmm. and all that junk. Um, yeah. What about that- dairy? Do you get a lot of criticism about dairy? Yeah, a lot. Like the whole, why are we the only mammals that drink yeah. milk from other yeah. mammals? Thing? <laughs> yeah. yeah, that one. Every time somebody says that to me, and I have yet <laughs> to have somebody like come back with like a valid statement when I say this, but mm-hmm. I'm like, yeah, you're right. Sure, whatever. But why are we the only mammals that cook our food? Why are the yeah, only the mammals that fly planes or drive cars planes, or do anything? <laughs> live in climate controlled houses. Like if yeah. you want to live like all the other animals, then burn your house down and go live in the forest with the other animals. Like <laughs> don't just singularly pick this one little topic yeah. because it fits your agenda. So Yeah, it's cherry picked for sure. Yeah. <laughs> well, but I spent too much more time on that, but I just I thought it would be uh, entertaining and also valuable at the same time. So last thing on this diet, well, actually two quick things. One, if you could quickly tell me what fuel sources are you using for your races that are those fat sources, or are you mainly just sticking to, because I know you did a race with no calories and just electrolytes. So how are you fueling during the race? It may just be sodium uh, and salt tabs and so forth. And then two, how, I guess you kind of covered it, but maybe you could reiterate in a, succinctly, but how fat oxidation is important for ultra runners specifically because of the the duration of the event so the zero like the the race i did with electrolytes only that was just an experiment um Mm -hmm. i don't do my races like that i figured not so yeah yeah so i just wanted to see if it was possible i've actually done Mm -hmm. it twice the first time i did it i did it to see if it was possible and then the second time i did it but i did like labs and stuff to see what was happening internally um, but yeah, like an actual race, um, I'll use a 200 for example. Like I found that it takes some time for my stomach to get used to digesting food while I'm racing. And so I generally pick the first 12 to 15 hours of a race to just have like super simple carbs. So I'll do gels, I'll do fruits, um, I'll do sports drinks. Um, I, I get as many of my calories and carbs from gels, sports, mm-hmm. sports drinks, and fruits for those first 12 to 15 hours. And then as the race progresses, I am start to able um, to have more calorically dense foods. Um, so, you know, I do bunless burgers. I've even done sushi. Um, I've done I, I, two things that I always try to avoid, even if it's during a race, is gluten and uh, seed oils. And mm-hmm. so, like, I love quesadillas, and so I get those uh, Siete almond flour tortillas, and I, um, like, I'll tell my crew, like, hey, at this next aid station, I want a quesadilla, and so they'll go to Cook the... Cook it up. Yeah, they'll go, <laughs> and they'll say, hey, my runner wants this, but he has a gluten intolerance, whatever. <laughs> they mm-hmm. give him the, they give them the uh, almond flour tortillas. They also say he doesn't do seed oils, so they'll give them butter, and they basically, mm-hmm. like, just customize it for myself, so... Um, nice. I, I do a lot of what the other runners do, but I just do my own of it. Like I'll bring my own kettle and fire bone broth because like the broth from the ramen or the veggie broth or whatever, I don't like that stuff. There's a ton of junk in it. You're a picky um, guy, but I'm for very good picky. reasons. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So typical runner stuff, but just like my own variations of it basically. Yeah. Um, and then in terms of fat adaptation for runners, like I've always said it that, um, if I was like, if my main focus for racing was like a 50 K, I don't know if I'd be eating this way just because mm-hmm. I mean, even 50 milers, even some hundred milers, like Western States, like mm-hmm. the year that Jim Walmsley set the course record, I think I calculated he was doing like an eight fifteen pace for most of it. And so, you know, he's doing sub sevens on some of those sections. So it's like mm-hmm. those races where you're going so much harder. Yeah. You're type t- tapping into that glycogen more than you would fat. Mm-hmm. Like you're still going to have some low level of fat burning, but most of it's glycogen for those shorter, faster races. But mm-hmm. definitely for like most hundred mile races plus, so 200 mile races, especially I do believe fat burning is very like, it's, it's the best strategy for those races. Cause you're already going slower. Um, most people, even if they're not low carb is going to be like tapping into that fat burning because of how much lower their heart rate is. So I just basically the longer the distance, the the more I think it makes sense to be 
efficient at burning fat for fuel. And if you're not efficient at it, you're just kind of taking away your body's, um, just you're taking away an edge basically that you could have. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. The longer it is, the more valuable and critical or yeah, more valuable it is. Yeah. So it seems like you have an affinity for 200 mile races. Maybe I'm wrong. What <laughs> is the, uh, what is, what is it about those longer races? Those even more absurd races that kind of, uh, have this allure for you. Just that it, it's more than just running. Like I love the strategy behind all of it. The pacing mm -hmm. strategy, um, figuring out how to run well while you're sleep deprived. Like I just love the strategy of it. And honestly, more elements to, to think about more elements. Yeah. And then too, you just play to your strengths. Like, you know, I'm not a two thirty marathoner. I'm not going to be setting any world records at the 50 K distance. Like that's just not my niche. And mm -hmm. so it's just something that I'm better at just longer and consistently consistent. So that's just something that I like to focus on and try to get better at. Yeah. At this point, you've won a number of races and you've been racing for about a decade uh, from what Ultra Sign Up says. <laughs> and uh, so I wonder, what is your, your focus right now? What does your motivation primarily lie in as far as is it winning more races? Is it is it kind of uh, returning back and, and, and kind of holding that title you won the year before? Or is it more unique efforts like the FKT or, or different kind of odd efforts that you can go and attempt? Um, I mean, I'd say there's three things I'm looking at right now. One of them is I definitely want to be known as one of the, the better 200 mile races racers out there. Mm -hmm. Um, I kind of want that to be one of my legacies. Um, and then, yeah, the FKT stuff, because, you know, like I said, with the 200s, like the longer it is, the better I seem to do at it. So, you know, I'm definitely interested, like one day I want to go after the Appalachian Trail FKT. Mm -hmm. And so I'm going to be doing a lot of long FKTs, but shorter than the Appalachian trail. Um, I'm going to be doing a lot of those to build up for it. So do you have any interest in a transcon or that's too much? Um, well, that's mostly road, right? <laughs> that's true. I guess it is. I guess it yeah. is, but I see a lot of trail runners do it, I guess is where I was, my mm. mind was going. No interest. <laughs> no interest. I no. get it. <laughs> no. So yeah, Appalachian trail one day, I want to go back to the Arizona trail. Um, so yeah, a lot of long FKTs for sure being one of the best at the 200 mile distance. And then I'm starting to, um, I don't know if you saw my Instagram post, but I'm yeah, starting to be my next question. Okay. Yeah. The Spartans. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like I'm getting way into weightlifting. Like it's fun. I used to hate it. I used to just do it because I knew I needed to for what's, running. What's, uh, turned you on it? What, what has made you really, uh, find a love for it? So after the Arizona trail, even though I didn't finish it, I still, I still did 600 miles. It took 10 days. And like my body was just so wrecked for months after that. Like I even wondered if it was going to affect Cocodona, just like how drained my adrenals were. Mm -hmm. And so like there was a good month and a half where I was not doing hardly any running at all, but like I was missing that like physical activity high that I would get. And yeah. so I just started going to the gym every day just because I, I was craving some form of physical activity. And so mm -hmm. during that month and a half, like, you know, I started to notice that like, you know, my pecs got bigger and my biceps got bitter, like something. I'm yeah. Not yeah. Like when, when you see results like that, it's hard to not fall in love with it. Of course. And so, yeah, I just say I, at first it just became something I did a lot uh, to utilize some cross training for recovery. And then through that month and a half, I just learned how much I loved it. And so now I'm struggling to find a balance because you don't want to put on too much muscle if you want to be a I good was, runner. <laughs> yeah, I was going to ask you. So you get that Spartan race coming up in the fall, right? Yeah. So how are you? And I'm sure this will change. And I mean, I, I talked to it. It's kind of like the inverse coming from an elite runner now getting into some strength training. And then literally last week I was talking to uh, me and Jeremy actually both talked to him. Uh, Pete Rubish, he was a uh, powerlifter for years, super strong, 900-pound deadlift, 2,100-pound total now he's trying to get into the uh, the ultra world eventually. <laughs> so everyone has their own balance, but currently, what is how are you balancing strength and lifting? Like how many days are strength and uh, endurance? How many days are you lifting? What are those tip workouts typically look like? And what are the challenges you're running into right now? So the challenges I'm running into, which I've kind of addressed, was I was just getting way too exhausted. Sore? Oh, okay, exhausted. 
Yeah. <laughs> so up until the past two weeks, I've been doing six days a week of lifting mm-hmm. and uh, six days a week of running. So basically every day I ran, I would also lift. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, yeah, I just found that I had no gas in the tank for my runs. Um, and so now I'm doing four days a week of lifting and two of those days are more of like a Tabata full body type workout mm-hmm. where I'm like doing dumbbell squats with a shoulder press or whatever, mm-hmm. um, pushups, pull-ups, whatever. So two of the days are like a little bit lighter, but like more intense in terms of just like reps and speed. Mm-hmm. And then the other two days, um, you know, I'm doing heavier weights, but it's not like one rep max or like three reps or whatever. Like I'm still going for endurance. So like yesterday was chest and legs. And Mm -hmm. I usually do it where like, you know, like the first set I did was like Bulgarian split squats with weight on the Smith machine. But then Mm -hmm. I also mix that in with um, incline bench. So I do a set of Bulgarian split squats, then the bench, then... So supersetting. Yeah, Yeah. supersetting. Is that what it's called? (laughs) Yeah, that's what it's called. (laughs) So yeah, I do supersetting, I guess. (laughs) But yeah, but instead of like doing like 10 reps on the bench, I was doing like 20 to 30 reps or whatever. Okay. so, So yeah, real high. Yeah. Okay. So I guess... Do you ever do any, any, spend any time in the like six to 10 rep range or is it always kind of 15 plus? Um, every now and then I'll do, I've never done six, but 10 is typically the lowest that I do. Okay. Um, and then I do like a lot of battle ropes. So still like endurance type stuff, skiered machine. Yeah. Um, like I love doing like the big, one of the, my favorite moves is, um, like a squat, but on top of a BOSU ball. Have you ever done that before? Yeah, I imagine you have it flipped upside down, right? And you're kind of working on balance yeah. too a little bit. Yep. Yeah. 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 So I try knocking out as many birds with one stone as I can. Like work on the endurance, build the muscle, work on my stabilizing muscles by throwing in mm-hmm. that BOSU ball. Like, I always tell people the balance is solely dependent on what's important to you. And obviously what's important to you is first and foremost, your running and your actual performance in those races. And so it makes sense to be like, hey – even if I want, you know, if I, I would mind, you know, an even bigger chest or pecs and so <laughs> forth or biceps, uh, I want to keep these reps, you know, even higher because there is no no sense in me putting on a lot of actual muscle weight and so forth. I can mainly focus on just, you know, the, the definition of the muscle, the actual strength and so forth. Uh, whereas for me, especially coming from my background a little bit and not being an elite runner, I'd rather be the jacked elite runner than uh <laughs> than just be average and still look average so i i try and play that game of balancing some strength aesthetics and uh be mediocre in endurance but still finish the, the race is just fine so it, it, it is interesting though hearing everyone does everything a little bit different and actually like made a, a post today about my leg workout and it, what i wrote in there was you know hybrid training means different things to different people so it's just about finding exactly again like what your priorities are uh have you looked at any of i know I feel like she's the only runner that does a lot of strength training, but how Sally trains. Um, I just know she does a lot of strength training, but I don't, well, actually no, cause she posts videos and it sounds like she does a lot of kind of like what I do. Like yeah, yeah. it's, I don't think it's as high rep on some things as you, but it is still, I think most of it is in that like 12 to 20 rep range. I think it's light and she doesn't use any barbell. I think it's mainly like light dumbbells and different body weight movements. Um, I think she does mix in some like Tabata and, and stuff that you're already doing as well. Um, but yeah, it, it is, uh, yeah, she's the only one I really, that comes to mind that consistently does that. And you know, uh, Jason Coop. Yeah. And I know he's, he's kind of like, I don't want to say anti-straight training cause I think he does some, but he doesn't think there's like much carryover, but I think it's, it's incredibly valuable just scientifically with increasing like the bone density and avoiding, I think stress fractures and just overall health. I think long-term it's, it can only you know boost you as long as you aren't shifting your focus towards too much lifting. Yeah. I mean, I think it's just like the diet thing that we were just, I was just saying, like, yeah. in my opinion, the further the distance, the more strength training makes sense. Like, mm, yeah, because that's right. I mean, I'm guessing that muscle breakdown ties heavily into like pains and tightnesses that you have to deal with in these races. Mm -hmm. And so the stronger muscle you have, the less likely you're going to have muscle breakdown or it's going to be delayed. Um, What was I going to say about Coop though? 
Um, he's a funny guy. He he, he, he could be a he could be a yeah like a polemic on different different things and very like dogmatic and so forth. Uh, but he's got a great great podcast. I got his book over there on the shelf. I've actually oh, ran nice. into him twice on the uh, the trails because he lives over in this area. Um, but I never bother him. I just say, yeah. hey, <laughs> yeah. love the podcast. Keep running. Yeah. Doesn't need to waste time with someone like me. He and I yeah. have an interesting relationship. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> But no, it was actually Jeremy I was going to talk about. Like, didn't he just barely post a week or two ago something about how there was a study done that showed that muscle cramping was more from weak muscles and not as much about electrolytes? Maybe. Do you remember seeing that video? I don't don't remember seeing it, but (coughs) it would make some sense. I mean, I've always thought of it this way. Like, a stronger body is going to just be more resilient overall. And, you know, another uh, area of fitness that gets almost pushed to the side is stretching like Mm. a lot of lifters i've noticed have been very dismissive of the value of stretching yet i've always been under the mindset of if i can be stronger in more lengthened positions if my body can can reach uh you know longer full fuller ranges of motion and i can be stronger throughout that whole range of motion then i am going to probably prevent injury and I am going to be, you know, stronger in a race when my body is used to uh, extending into those different ranges of motion. So I'm less likely to be dependent on, you know, a glute failing. So then it's going to pull in the hamstring or pull in the back and so forth. I don't know. I just think yeah, sometimes people just they don't because it's not like a one to one benefit. They almost like dismiss it. So because <laughs> strength training doesn't seem to have a direct benefit, like immediately invisible, uh, they, they kind of discount the. I guess, long-term benefits that it can, you know, uh, elicit down the line. Yeah. That makes sense to me. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if I have much more to add to that. (laughs) Yeah. Well, where can people find you? Uh, just, uh, the low carb runner on Instagram Mm -hmm. and, uh, the, um, low carb dash runner.com, um, on the the internet. (laughs) Mm-hmm. I just sounded very old when I said that <laughs> <laughs> on on the interwebs. On the interwebs. <laughs> are you are you still? I think uh, Jeremy told me you have like an absurd amount of clients. But are you taking any? Uh, do you have any openings now? In case people are wondering. Um, if my wife is listening, then no, I'm not. <laughs> but yeah. Um, I mean, I always the way I answer that is like you know I'm kind of at the perfect spot with my clients. Um, yeah. I probably have a little too much if I'm being honest, but if the right person comes along and I feel like I could just be a value for them, then I'll obviously take them on still. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, I'm not actively looking, but if somebody could really use some help, then yeah, I'm still taking some people on. Awesome. Well, there you go. I appreciate you coming on. If you guys enjoyed this podcast, please follow it, check out uh, Mike and all the great stuff that he's posting and doing, and we'll catch you guys in the next one.